Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 62, Ptolemaic Egypt, Egyptians in a Greek Land. For thousands of years, since the first gods emerged from the primordial waters of creation, Egypt has been the envy of all those who gazed upon it. While it had been centuries since the glory days of Tutmos or Ramesses, the children of the Red and Black Lands nevertheless held fast to their traditions and history with proud hearts, undeterred by outside invaders. The Hyksos, the Nubians, the Persians, ignorant as they may have been, they either fell into the alluring embrace of Egyptian culture, were too small to make an impact, or were far enough away to either ignore or revolt against. But the arrival of the kings from across the Great Green, the Argian and Ptolemaic dynasties of Macedonia, were quite different. While the Ptolemies were eager to insert themselves into the traditional role of pharaoh, they brought with them tens of thousands of settlers from their homelands, constructed new Greek-styled cities on a colossal scale and scope, and seemed to reshape the land at their whim. This all came at a price which was to be paid for through the exploitation of the gifts of the Nile, and through a new tax regime designed to squeeze as much revenue from the peoples of Egypt as possible. In this episode, I want to look at the other side of Hellenistic Egypt, to see how the native Egyptians reacted and responded to the arrival of a new political, social, and cultural elite. Of all the lands that Alexander took from the Persian Empire, Egypt proved to be the easiest to oversee the smooth transition of power from Persian satraps to Greek governors. His death then opened the door for Ptolemy I to claim Egypt as a spear one prize, using his great wealth combined with military forces to secure his control, establishing a dynasty that lasted 300 years. How did the Egyptians feel about this? One indirect response might be through the Alexander Romance, a collection of Vulgate traditions about the sensationalized life of Alexander the Great that is thought to have originated in Egypt during the late 4th, early 3rd century. In it, the last Egyptian pharaoh, Nectanebo II, flees to the court of Macedonia under the guise of an astrologer and sleeps with Olympias of Epirus, who then gives birth to Alexander nine months later. Effectively, Alexander is reclaimed as an Egyptian, The reframing of Alexander as a legitimate pharaoh may have worked to the benefit of the Ptolemies, who styled themselves explicitly as Alexander's successors, but the Egyptians may have adopted the conqueror as one of their own as a way to rationalize or cope with the realities of Greek rule. Truthfully though, we don't have much in the way of direct evidence indicating how they felt towards Alexander and the early Ptolemies. Greek accounts of Alexander's arrival are remarkably rosy and optimistic, and the Ptolemaic takeover is not well documented beyond focusing on Ptolemy's interaction with the other players in the wars of the successors. But while a large army and lots of money can do wonders, the Ptolemies could not have realistically maintained control or properly implement an effective taxation program without coming to terms with the Egyptian elite, the priestly, administrative, and military families of Egypt. By doing so, they were better able to utilize the tried-and-true machinery of governance that had been developed in Egypt for over three millennia. Some of these families have left an impressive archaeological and epigraphical record, and we could see that many high-ranking officials and positions were dominated by a single family throughout the Ptolemaic period. For example, one family service as high priests of Ptah in Memphis can be documented for ten generations. 
Astile indicates that the personal retinue of Ptolemy II included bodyguards recruited from the sons of upper-class Egyptians. Biographical inscriptions written in hieroglyphic can be found on the graves of Egyptians who were in service to the crown, and they proudly display a highlight reel of their careers. Such a practice was commonplace throughout Egypt's history, and this includes the Hellenistic period. One of these is Senenshepsu, an Egyptian official during the reign of Ptolemy II. Senenshepsu informs us that he had served the royal family as the overseer of the harem, which means that he was probably the chief attendant to Queen Arsinoe II and managed the women's quarters of the Palace of Alexandria. Much of his language is very formal and stresses his personal relationship with the king and queen, a recurring theme in these stone resumes. Another is Pasharim Ptah, a priest of Ptah in Memphis from approximately 75 to 41 BC, whose grave stele happily recounts the story of Ptolemy XII Alites, granting him the role as high priest of the Ptolemaic royal cult. Quote, I betook me to the residence of the kings of the Ionians, which is on the shore of the Great Sea to the west of Rakati, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, the master of two worlds, the father-loving, sister-loving god, the new Osiris, was crowned in his royal palace. He proceeded to the temple of Isis, the lady of Yatujat. He offered unto her sacrifices many and costly. Riding in his chariot forth from the temple of Isis, the king himself caused his chariot to stand still. He wreathed my head and with a beautiful wreath of gold and all matters of gems, except only the royal pectoral which was on his own breast. I was nominated prophet, and he sent out a royal rescript to the capitals of the, all the gnomes, saying, I have appointed the high priest of Memphis, Pasharimpatah, to be my prophet. And there was delivered to me from the temples of Upper and Lower Egypt a yearly revenue from my maintenance. I was a great man, rich in all riches. End quote. The experience of Pasharimpatah is but one example of the relationship between the temples and the crown. As it had always been, temples remained an integral part of the Egyptian way of life. To clarify, in Egyptian religion, the temple was not a house of worship akin to a modern church or a mosque. It was a sanctuary for the gods, statues of whom could be housed in the center, closed off from much of the public eye and the outside world. The priests, as the stand-ins for the pharaoh, would perform the necessary rituals and libations to appease the deities. Festivals would be organized, of which there were plenty, and the sacred animals, incarnations of their gods, like the Apis bull, would be looked after. By doing this, the priests were ensuring the stability and order of the cosmos. But beyond the religious aspect, temples played other important roles as well. For starters, they were centers of economic activity. Diodorus in the first century suggests that up to one-third of all land in Egypt was owned by the priests, and even if we assume that this is a gross overestimation, it is still a significant amount of land available for exploitation. In addition to agricultural products, there were temple-run businesses like textile mills, and plenty of money was to be made from appealing to the religious sensibilities of the community through the sale of votives like animal mummies. Another role of the temples would ultimately be that of administration. Though priesthood was hereditary and passed from father to son, prospective priests needed to be sufficiently educated. Literacy was extremely important in this regard. Beyond the knowledge of incantations and magical spells, the priests developed a scribal tradition that allowed them to act as an extension of the Egyptian government. Most native Egyptians could go to the temples to draw up legal documents such as marriage contracts, business loans, and even taxation-related matters. If there was litigation to be done between Egyptian parties, it would be in front of a tribunal of priests. This would prove to be invaluable to the Ptolemaic government, which is why they would immediately seek to court them. 
Starting from the time of Ptolemy I onwards, state-backed temple construction and patronage would be a common feature of the relationship between the Ptolemies and the priests. It would not be far-fetched to say that the bulk of our best-preserved temples, what we often associate with Egyptian culture, were built on the order of the Ptolemies and the later Roman emperors. It was a mutually beneficial relationship. The priests received donations of land and associated revenues, tax exemptions, along with a guaranteed protection of their religious rights and customs, whereas the Ptolemies could rely on the priests to act as mediators to the Egyptian populace on their behalf. For instance, the Rosetta Stone was as much honoring King Ptolemy VI for his donations to the temple as it was a tacit approval of his legitimacy. Contextually speaking, it was set up by the Memphite priesthood during a turning point in the Great Revolt that had seized much of the country for over a decade. Let us look at one of the most important priests of the Ptolemaic period. In a previous episode on the Seleucid Empire, I talked about a man known as Barossus. As a refresher, Barossus was a Babylonian scholar who worked underneath Seleucus and Antiochus I, notable for writing about the history and mythology of Babylonia. The remarkable thing about his work is that it was written in Greek, and intended for a Greek-speaking audience, but it was also a manifestation of an author's pride for his culture. At around the same time, there existed another figure in Egypt in the Ptolemaic court that shared some striking similarities with Barossus. This individual was named Manetho, an Egyptian by birth, though we only have the Hellenized rendition of his original name. Born and raised in the settlement of Sebenitos along the eastern Nile Delta, Manetho served as the priest of Temple of the Sun God Ra in the city of Heliopolis. His priestly role ensured that he was both literate and well-versed in the traditions of Egypt, and Sebenitos was the holdout of the last indigenous dynasty prior to the Persian Reconquest, a dynasty that both Alexander and the Ptolemies consciously sought to link themselves to. Perhaps it is because of this that Manetho found himself a high position at the court of Ptolemy I and Ptolemy II. Tradition maintains that he was heavily involved in the mediation between the Egyptian populace and the new Greek rulers. Plutarch states that Manetho was part of the think tank that helped establish the worship of Serapis. But the most famous contribution by Manetho was the Aegyptiaca, a history of Egypt in three books from the primordial creation down to the flight of the last native pharaoh Nectanebo II. Unfortunately, most of the work does not survive, but what we have is incredibly insightful. The Aegyptiaca is a unique specimen. Drawing upon oral traditions and the heavily curated king's lists of the Egyptian priesthood, Manetho organized an extremely accurate chronology of Egypt's rulers that has proved invaluable to later Egyptologists who often use it as a comparative work during their research. Rather than a strict list of names and dates, Manetho drew upon the Greek historiographical tradition and wove the chronology with a narrative of each ruler. It was he who also pioneered the concept of organizing the pharaohs into dynasties, a practice that we continue to rely upon to the present day. Why did Manetho write the Aegyptiaca, and who was his intended audience? Given that it was written in Greek, it is a logical conclusion to assume that it was meant for educated Greeks. Some suggest that it was commissioned on the orders of Ptolemy I, potentially to legitimize his family by weaving them into the traditional narrative of the Egyptian monarchy. Manetho was clearly a learned man, possessing a good enough grasp of Greek that he was able to read and emulate the historiographical style of those like Herodotus and Thucydides. But unlike Barossus, who seems to have also modeled his writings in the manner of Herodotus, Manetho heavily scolded the golden boy of Halicarnassus for his flawed reporting on Egyptian customs and history. 
He even went so far as to dedicate an entire book to his criticisms, referred to as his Against Herodotus. This may suggest that Manetho's literary endeavor was a self-imposed project to correct the Greek perception of Egypt, a conscious display of pride for Egypt's antiquity and culture, while at the same time communicating through a Greek means. Africa is a land with endless stories to tell. From epic battles, brilliant rulers, and the dramatic rise and fall of civilizations, join us on the History of Africa podcast to learn the oft-ignored stories of the African continent. From the sands of Cairo to the plains of Zimbabwe, and from the mountains of Ethiopia to the forests of the Congo, find the History of Africa podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Certainly, the elite was able to come to some sort of arrangement with the Ptolemies for their own gain. However, an important question to ask is if your average Egyptian was capable of any degree of social mobility in a system that seems to have favored Greeks. One tried and true route was the army. It has been commonly asserted that the Ptolemies were notoriously reluctant to incorporate Egyptians into the military, citing Polybius' account of the Battle of Raphia in 217 and the subsequent consequences of doing so. While there may be a grain of truth to this argument, there is plenty of evidence to suggest that the Egyptians have been serving in the army in significant numbers throughout the entirety of the dynasty's reign. As early as 312, Ptolemy I raised Egyptian levies styled in the Macedonian phalanx against the armies of Demetrius Polyarchides. One of the most common designations we find for Egyptian soldiers is the term makamoi. This is a controversial topic, and one subject to lots of debate. It has often been asserted that any Egyptian serving in the army was that was to be given land would fall into the title makamoi instead of cleric as the class of the Makamoi may have roots in the organization of the Egyptian army during the late period as described by Herodotus. The term second-rate appears frequently in scholarly works, and the payout was appropriately small. They would usually receive plots of land between 5 and 10 aruas in size, roughly 4 to 7 acres or 1.5 to 3 hectares. Many modern historians challenge these assumptions. The Makemoi were not exclusively made of Egyptians, as there are Greek Makemoi attested to in surviving papyri. Instead of being considered a mere mob of peasants, we find Egyptian Makemoi employed in a variety of roles, both in battle and in security with considerable professionalism. The Battle of Raphia does mark a turning point, though, as we see an increase in the number of Egyptians serving in the Ptolemaic army from the late 3rd to the early 1st century. When it came to more domestic matters, the police force was an excellent avenue for Egyptian social advancement, serving as law enforcement officers known as the Falakitai. These were the men responsible for leading criminal investigations, overseeing the apprehension and detainment of suspects, or acting as personal guards for VIPs or important cargo. Comparing the ethnic makeup of the army and that of the police, we find that the Falakitai have a greater representation of Egyptians within its ranks when you also consider that perhaps upwards of 3% of the total adult population in all of Egypt were active police, this is a substantial number. As we mentioned earlier, the arrival of the Ptolemies did not mean the exclusion of Egyptians from enrolling in the civil service. In the last episode, we looked in the archive of Diophanes, the governor of the Arsinoite Nome during the late 3rd century. By contrast, we also have a collection of papers belonging to an Egyptian official named Menkes. Menkes was a government scribe in the Arsinoite village of Kirke Osiris from approximately 119 to 110 BC, giving us a unique perspective of an official on the lower levels of the Egyptian bureaucracy. 
While Diophanes' papers were related to his power as an arbitrator of legal disputes, Menkes' position as a village clerk required him to act as an overseer of agricultural and taxation-related matters. This includes the surveying of land at all stages, such as recording the area of cultivatable land by taking regular measurements of both the flooded area and crop yields. By doing so, he could then calculate the rent and tax duties owed to the state by the tenants. However, Menkes found himself in a uniquely challenging position. When he had been reinstated in his role in 119, a decade-long civil war between Ptolemy VIII and Cleopatra II and III had just been brought to a close, leaving behind a lot of farmland that had been abandoned or neglected by its occupants in the face of brigands and plundering armies. It was therefore up to him to restore land that had either been flooded or succumbed to the salination problem that so commonly afflicted the states in the Fayum. But rather than viewing the job as a sort of menial or ho-hum task, the position of village clerk was quite prestigious and a good opportunity for making money. In order to even be considered for the position, Menkes had to bid for the contract and get approval from the village elders, and the government required him to take on about 10 oruros of unproductive land out of his own expenses. He seems to have thrived, though, and engaged in side operations to collect a nice profit on fixing up reclaimed land. There were, however, obstacles that needed to be dealt with beyond taxation. As a government intermediary, Menkes received petitions and appeals for him to bring to his superiors. The instability of the period made crime relatively commonplace, with incidences like smuggling, theft, and embezzlement. Poverty and high tax demands from the crown incited the strike from tenants in Kirkeosiris who sought sanctuary in one of the local temples until the government renegotiated, which Menkes had to mediate. It could also affect his personal well-being. After a night of drinking and eating at a local tavern with a group of friends, Menkes and his compatriots were arrested and jailed because a local, who had also been drinking at the same tavern, accused the group of poisoning him. Our clerk was soon let go, presumably when the prosecuting party failed to demonstrate any real symptoms, such as dying. But Menkes suggests that the man was trying to extort him for money. Menkes was but one of many of these village clerks, who were necessary to keep the Ptolemaic tax regime operational, even as it was on the decline. Turning to those same villages, we can try to recreate the social and economic life of lower-class Egyptians. Like with the Greeks, agriculture remained the primary occupation for most Egyptians. A common form can be seen with the royal peasants, tenant farmers working on crown land. Unlike clerics, these peasants were given far less autonomy in what they could plant and the need to provide a percentage of their crop following the harvest. They could also work as day laborers for government projects, such as the building of temples or irrigation dikes. Though the Arsinoite gnome has the reputation of being the most Hellenized part of Egypt, internal immigration from Egyptian workers taking part in the reclamation of the Fayum meant that the Greeks were still a minority population. One of the most important Egyptian industries was tied to beer, the alcoholic drink of choice for Egyptians which functioned in a similar manner for sustenance in social settings as wine was for the Greeks and Romans. Grain mash, yeast, and warm water would be combined to create the conditions necessary for fermentation, and a designated area of the kitchen would be reserved for personal brews. Beer could be used as wages for laborers, and there were government and privately run breweries for those looking to make in mass quantities. Such shops could be run by the same family for generations, including by women. One letter from an elderly Egyptian woman demanded the return of her daughter who eloped with a Greek vineyard worker. She felt that the Greek deceived her child into marrying him, and now that the mother had entered her golden years, she was unable to work, 
and needed the daughter to take up ownership of her brewery for financial support. The religious beliefs of Egyptians remain largely unaffected by the arrival of the Greeks as well. The attempt to introduce new gods like Serapis into the mix did little to capture the interest of the Egyptians, who went about worshipping their traditional pantheon as they always had. But the Ptolemaic royal cult did prove to be somewhat of a success, as several Egyptian daughters would bear the names of Ptolemaic queens like Arsinoe. While the temples retained a position of importance for religious matters, Egyptian homes could be found with niches in their walls intended to hold sacred objects and allow for the private veneration of the gods. These ranged from bronze and terracotta statuettes to wooden placards bearing the painted images of the divine, perhaps a forerunner to the later Christian icons. One fascinating example of Greco-Egyptian confluence can be found in their funerary customs. Mummification, perhaps the most iconic aspect of Egypt alongside the pyramids, continued to be practiced in significant amounts and remained a closely guarded secret. Professional organizations and families of embalmers were scattered throughout the cities, plying their trade. It wasn't just limited to human subjects either, as there was an entire industry dedicated to raising animals for the sole purpose of being killed and mummified, then selling the animal mummies to pilgrims and tourists in need of a votive to dedicate to their respective god. A traveler may buy a cat for Bashtet or an ibis for Thoth. Despite there being literally millions of these mini-mummies, they are still remarkable to look at up close. As a brief aside, when I was a biology undergraduate, I had the luxury of accidentally discovering a mummified falcon in my university's collection of preserved ornithological specimens that was forgotten for decades. While I did not realize how relatively common such an item was in the grand scheme of things, being able to physically interact with a piece of Egyptian culture like that was very exciting. But anyways, back to the task at hand. Eventually, these Egyptian burial practices would blend with Greek artistic traditions, the most spectacular of these being the famous Fayum mummy portraits. Though our best examples emerged from the Roman period, the changes began to occur under Greek rule. Following the mummification process, the deceased would have a wooden mask placed upon their face, or on a nearby placard. On the mask would be incredibly lifelike paintings of the departed, sharing strong similarities with the frescoes and wall paintings so popular throughout the Greco-Roman world. With some confidence, many of the subjects can be determined to be of an Egyptian ethnic background. But the paintings are a mix of expressions. Men and women would support hairstyles, clothing, and jewelry that were popular at the time of their death. These were predominantly Greek or Roman in style, such as togas for men or oak wreaths. But these would be complemented by representations of the Egyptian pantheon or funerary texts written in much the same fashion as they were thousands of years before. As their funerary practices suggest, to be an Egyptian under Ptolemaic rule required two faces, for lack of a better word. Because Greek had become the main administrative language and the language of the elite, many Egyptians quickly had to become at least somewhat bilingual. Double names were present in the other parts of the Hellenistic world as well, such as Seleucid Mesopotamia, but there is a far greater amount of evidence for such practices in Egypt. There are several reasons to do so. Many Egyptians would use their Greek names on legal documents like petitions to the king or business contracts, in part because it probably gave them a better chance of being heard by higher levels of the government. For instance, our village clerk Menkes also had the name Asclepiades, which was used in documents directed to his superiors. The other important reason is because it may have allowed them to achieve greater social mobility. 
Although I don't believe that Hellenization was a consciously enforced policy for any of the successor kingdoms, non-Greeks who were more receptive to adopting Greek customs and practices would be more favored by the king than those who were not. Such was the case in Hellenistic Judea, where the factionalism between the pro-Hellenic and conservative Jewish communities would lead to the outbreak of the Maccabean Revolt. By being able to read and write in Greek, the number of opportunities for promotion in the government expanded. Officials that were more openly Egyptian, or, rather, those that can be confidently identified as Egyptian by modern scholars, tend to be clustered around the lower levels of the bureaucracy. To be able to participate in Greek institutions, such as the gymnasia, would confer a marker of privilege and status, and it is worthy to note that we find more Egyptians enrolling in and being accepted by the gymnasia from the late 3rd century onwards. This ties in with the concept of ethnicity within Ptolemaic Egypt. All individuals were placed into legal brackets based upon their origins and backgrounds. Greek, with various subgroups like Cretans or Macedonians, Egyptian, Jewish, etc. Those within the Greek bracket would receive tax privileges, such as avoiding taxes issued per head of the household. By virtue of the predominance of Greek culture and language within the ruling body of the government, those who were perceived to be Greek and placed within that category would attain a higher social distinction over those that were not. For judicial matters, a similar system would be in place. Legal disputes between Greek parties would be subject to Greek tribunals and law, and Egyptians would follow the pre-existing customs of the land instead. At first glance, the emergence of a legal system and socio-economic hierarchy based on ethnic identity has drawn concerning comparisons to modern colonial empires and apartheid states. There is rationale to this argument, but the concept of ethnicity is much more fluid in Hellenistic Egypt than what ought to be believed. Increasingly, scholars have argued that these designations are not based on a sense of racial superiority as much as they were an economic description. What we find is that the distinction between Greek and non-Greek was not as concrete from a legal standpoint as one might expect. There are many individuals in the records who have an almost entirely Egyptian background, yet they were placed within the Greek tax bracket. We have plenty of evidence that the double name convention was not, strictly speaking, an all-or-nothing practice. Even for Egyptians who were heavily Hellenized, we still see that the use of personal Egyptian names never really abated in the home. Legal documents and personal correspondence could be written in Demotic. Even the government was bilingual to some extent, though Demotic was primarily used in the lower levels of administration. As one moved south into Upper Egypt, the need for bilingualism was less pressing, especially if one could request a Greek-speaking member of the community to write a petition on your behalf. To better illustrate the complexities of ethnic and cultural identity within Egypt, let's look at the archives of the family of Dryton. Covering much of the 2nd century BC, the recovered papyrus and ostraca fragments provide us with a fascinating look at the dynamics of a multicultural military household, along with the roles of Egyptian women. Of Cretan ancestry, Dryton was born in the city of Ptolemais in the Thebae during the 190s BC, likely the son of a military veteran. He clearly was of some means, as he was able to serve as a cavalry commander within the Ptolemaic army. Enlisting during the tumultuous period that saw the Sixth Syrian War and native rebellions. Originally stationed around his native city, Dryton married a woman of Cretan descent named Serapius, who later conceived a son by the name of Esladus. At some point, Serapius either died or was divorced, and Dryton was permanently reassigned to the city of Pythyrus in 152 BC, some 100 kilometers south of Ptolemais. 
While both Ptolemais and Pythyrus were in Upper Egypt, Ptolemais had been established by Ptolemy I in the manner of a traditional Greek polis, of which Dryden held citizenship to, whereas Pythyrus was thoroughly Egyptian, both in terms of culture and in population. So how did Dryden adapt to his new home? Within a short time following his transfer, Dryden was married to a young woman of the area, Senmonthus, who was quite different from his previous wife. Senmonthus was of Egyptian origin, from a military family that had enrolled as infantrymen in the Ptolemaic army for multiple generations. Dryden had actually served with her father in the unit stationed at Pythyrus, and it is presumably through their contact that the marriage had been arranged between the two families. Marriages between Greeks and Egyptians, almost exclusively Greek men and Egyptian women, are not especially common in the papyrological record, at least in terms of sheer numbers, but they are present. This may be aggravated by the fact that Egyptian wives use the Greek names in legal paperwork, and the general lack of Greek women for the earliest military colonists meant that soldiers could take wives from the local communities that they garrisoned with, as was the case for Dryton. While we can only speculate at the bride's thoughts on the groom, especially when we consider that she was roughly 15 to 17 years of age, whereas he was in his 40s, there were many perks to this match. Dryton was educated, or at least literate, capable of both reading and writing in Greek. In contrast to her father and grandfather's lowly status as foot soldiers, her husband was Hipparchos, a cavalry officer which commanded the high amount of prestige and pull within the social network of the military and the community at large. Such a position meant that he was a man of some means as well, able to supplement his larger army pay with his substantial holdings and property. By marrying Dryton, Senmonthus was able to greatly improve her economic and social standing, which she took full advantage of. Why Dryton sought this match is unclear. Egyptian women held more legal rights than their Greek counterparts, meaning that they possessed more control of the household and the marriage contract itself. But perhaps as a Greek living in the predominantly Egyptian community, Dryton sought a chance to get involved in the social network of the region, and having an Egyptian wife to act as either an intermediary or a guide could certainly provide an excellent opportunity to do so. From what we can tell, the marriage was successful and long-lasting. Senmonthus provided Dryton five children, all daughters, who eventually reached adulthood and were married off. This is quite remarkable. The practice of infanticide, especially regarding unwanted daughters who could be seen as financial burdens, was not uncommon in Greek society. By contrast, infanticide was either illegal or highly frowned upon in Egyptian communities. While it's possible that this was due to the greater financial stability enjoyed by the family, or a father's love for his children, perhaps Senmonthus' cultural attitudes had rubbed off on her husband. Dryton's son, Esladus, was not neglected in favor of his new family either. In the many wills Dryton drew up over his comparatively long life, Esladus is named the main beneficiary, unsurprising given his status as both the eldest child and sole male heir. From what evidence is available, Esladus seemed to be on good terms with his stepmother and half-siblings. Having followed his father's footsteps into the army, Esladus wrote a letter on January the 15th of 130 BC, just before embarking on an expedition during a civil war that gripped Egypt and the time. Quote, Esladus to his father and mother, greetings and good health. As I tell you over and over again in my letters, keep up your spirits and take good care of yourself till things settle down. Now again, I say, please reassure yourself and our family, for the news that General Paus is sailing up the river next month with sufficient forces to subdue the mobs in Hermonthus and deal with them as rebels. Look after my sisters, 
goodbye. End quote. What information can we glean from the records regarding the identity of the family members? Dryden and Esladus remained conservatively Greek in terms of language and culture. All of their private letters were written in Greek, and the vast majority of Dryden's contracts were in Greek with very few exceptions. It is unclear how much demonic he actually picked up during his residence in Pythyrus, but given his involvement with the Egyptian community and having an Egyptian wife, I wouldn't be surprised if he acquired a passing knowledge of it to some degree. It is when we turn to Senmanthus and her daughters that we gain a greater insight as to the cultural dynamics of the family. Following her marriage to Dryton, Senmanthus took on the name Apollonia. Both her father and grandfather possessed Greek names in addition to their Egyptian ones as well. And as we already have discussed, double names were common in Hellenistic Egypt. But she was now married to a Greek officer with considerable personal wealth, and so her use of Apollonia in official documents carried a distinctive gravitas to it when compared to your average Egyptian. Senmanthus's self-presentation as Apollonia stands out, especially when we look at how she kept herself occupied during her marriage. The family's comfortable financial position enabled them to become lenders in both money and in kind. Senmanthus herself was responsible for drafting several loans, and while she would follow Greek or Egyptian custom by having either a male guardian, Dryton, or a notary of one of the local temples sign off the agreement, she nevertheless exerted a degree of economic independence that would be envious to Greek women of any class. She certainly had experience overseeing their estate, and probably managed her own agricultural plots to sell and trade, but she seems to have also been quite a usurious lender. One loan of money to an Egyptian family was termed of four and a half months with an interest rate of 5%, while Ptolemaic law should have fixed that rate at 2% at most. Another loan was drawn up by Senmanthus with a clause that guaranteed no interest, but in reality, the principal was adjusted so that she would be compensated by the lump sum payment anyways. Whether her husband's lofty position as an officer or him being Greek enabled her to skirt around the legality of her loans is unclear, but she was able to make a nice stipend for herself. As much as we can assert that Senmanthus eagerly sought to Hellenize, several pieces of evidence challenge that viewpoint. Despite being the children of a Greek father and an Egyptian mother who enjoyed presenting herself as a dutiful Greek wife, the daughters of Dryton and Senmanthus all possessed Greek and Egyptian names. Apollonia Senmanthus, Aristo Senmanthus, Aphrodisia Takratis, Nicarion Thermuthis, and Apollonia the Younger Senmanthus. The girls who were later married all took Egyptian husbands, and their children possessed only Egyptian names. Similar to how the personal correspondence between Dryton and Esladus remained in Greek, Senmanthus and her daughter's personal letters were written in Demotic Egyptian. On them, she would sign her name as Senmanthus rather than Apollonia, the face she presented in business and legal transactions. With the case of Senmanthus, we see how the concept of Greekness could be used to improve one's social standing, but that it did not require a complete abandonment of her Egyptian identity in favor of a Greek one. In contrast to Dryton and Senmanthus, we also have the records of another mixed military family of a lower standing, that of Dionysius Plenus in the mid-late 2nd century. Though from a predominantly Egyptian background, Dionysius had a mixed ancestry that included Greeks as well. His father, Cephalus, had served as an infantryman in the army. Cephalus's technical designation was Mistophoros, which means that he was paid with regular wages rather than being incorporated into the clerical system and given a piece of property. This does not mean that the family was poor. 
Dionysius was sufficiently literate in both Greek and demonic, capable of writing letters in both languages, and was even given a minor priestly role and salary as caretaker of sacred ibises. Though his status is listed as a royal peasant, much like the clerics, Dionysius was able to use his income from his priestly duties and family plot to invest in land and have it rented out to other farmers. Most of the documents preserved from his collection relate to loans of grain borrowed from other soldiers or farmers in an attempt to speculate and capitalize on market prices of wheat. It may have not been the most stable of incomes, so he needed to find something more reliable. In about 106, Dionysius had followed his father's and his brother Paisis' footsteps by enlisting into the army as a mistoforos. He was stationed full-time in the important garrison town of Akoris in Upper Egypt. The steady wealth gained from service would allow him to engage in the same sort of speculation and agricultural ventures as before, albeit with a greater allowance. Dionysius' papers also reveals the complexities of Ptolemaic ethnic terminology. Initially, he can be found listed as a Persian, a term that is still under debate from scholars. It may be used to describe the descendants of garrison soldiers from the Persian occupation, whether they were ethnically Persian or not. Following his induction into the army, we see in Greek documents that he takes the designation Macedonian, while in demotic documents he takes the title Greek. Adding more confusion to the mix was Paisis, who was described as a Libyan. Through his service, Dionysius' ethnicity had changed as he moved up the chain of command, reflecting how the army was an important avenue for social mobility for indigenous Egyptians. Even Paisis was eventually promoted to the rank of cavalryman, placing him in the same social class as Dryden and Esladus. To bring our episode to a close, it is worth it to look at some of the more troubling aspects of Ptolemaic and Greek rule over Egypt. Though the Ptolemies went to great lengths to try and paint themselves as legitimate pharaohs, passing comments from demonic or hieroglyphic sources may reveal more ambivalent attitudes about them from the Egyptians. Despite fulfilling the roles necessary for an Egyptian ruler, the Egyptians themselves never truly forgot the foreign origins of the Macedonian-born dynasty. Even the positively inclined Pasharen Ptah, the Memphite priest promoted by Ptolemy XII to head of the royal cult, still referred to them as Ionian, or Greek kings, after nearly 300 years of rule. The Egyptian name for the royal capital of Alexandria is Raked, or Rakatis, literally meaning construction site. This is perhaps just a reference to the lengthy amount of time it took to build the city, but one can't help but wonder if it was intended to be a slight, when compared to the great Egyptian-built settlements like Thebes or Memphis. It is also important to consider how Greek perceptions could affect the way they treated Egyptians. Authors like Herodotus and Strabo clearly admired the antiquity of Egypt's past. Beyond the awe-inspiring monuments like the Pyramids of Giza or the Colossi of Memnon, Egyptians collectively were praised for their knowledge of astronomy, medicine, and philosophy. On the inverse, prejudices, if not ignorance, regarding the customs of Egypt certainly are present in the sources as well. Egyptians were often described as superstitious to an absurd degree, and a commonly shared misconception was that they worshipped animals. The most infamous was their supposed reverence and veneration of cats, who were protected by the law with the threat of capital punishment. Such prejudices, when combined with a general sense of superiority tied to economic or social status, can result in poor treatment of non-Greeks. While perhaps not explicitly from an Egyptian, a letter to a Greek estate manager expressed the sense of injustice that non-Greeks could face. Quote, to Xenon, greeting. 
You know that you left me in Syria with Krotos, and I did everything that was ordered in respect to the camels and was blameless towards you. When you sent an order to give me pay, he gave nothing of what you ordered. When I asked repeatedly that he give me what you ordered, and Krotos gave me nothing, but kept telling me to remove myself, I held up for a long time waiting for you. But when I was in want of necessities and could not get anything anywhere, I was compelled to run away into Syria so that I might not perish of hunger. So I wrote to you that you might know that Krotos was the cause of it. When you sent me again to Philadelphia to Jason, although I do everything that is ordered, for nine months now he gives me nothing of what you ordered me to have, neither oil nor grain, except at two-month periods when he also pays the clothing allowance. And I am in difficulty in both summer and winter, and he orders me to accept ordinary wine for salary. Well, they have treated me with scorn because I'm a barbarian. I beg you, therefore, if it seems good to you, to give them orders that I am to obtain what is knowing, and that in future they pay me in full, in order that I may not perish of hunger, because I do not know how to act the Hellene. End quote. One of the most common types of petitions made between Greek and Egyptian parties were property disputes. For all the work done by the Ptolemies to expand the amount of cultivated land in the Fayum, Egypt remained the most densely settled region in the world, and the introduction of thousands of immigrants, many of them soldiers for hire, would probably exacerbate the issue. It is probably no coincidence that the earliest known Greek papyrus dated to the Hellenistic period is an order from Alexander's governor, Pucestus, barring the seizure of a property of a priest. An example of such a dispute landed on the desk of Diophanes, the strategos of the Arsinoite gnome. Quote, to King Ptolemy, Greetings from Passus, an Egyptian farmer of Polydukia. I am wrong by Gororos, a Greek holder of seventy Aruros. I own a house in the village, and I have been thrown out by him by force, together with my cattle, which are wandering loose in the open air, even though he has a place in the village that was given to him as his lodgings. I therefore beg you, O king, do not allow him to throw me out of my own house, so that I may be able to attend to my farming, and through you, O king, the common savior of all, I may obtain justice. End quote. Even in times of peace and prosperity, this was a common affair. A letter from Ptolemy II to a subordinate reveals how the government was aware of soldiers going about and throwing the previous inhabitants out of their homes, and in his defense, he was actively attempting to put a stop to such an action. But in times of civil strife, we find complaints lodged against wayward soldiers taking advantage of the lack of government oversight and ransacking the homes of locals. The Archive of Menkes has five separate petitions relating to a particularly violent cavalry officer who attacked several homes on August the 23rd and 113 BC. One of them reads as follows, quote, To Menkes, village clerk of Kirkeosiris, from Hamarissus, son of Serapion, a crown farmer of the said village. On the 8th of Messori of year 4, my house was invaded by Pyrikos, son of Dionysius, one of the cavalry colonists, and Heraklios, son of Posadippus of the same village, together with very many others armed with swords. Forcing their way in, they broke the lock of my mother's room and carried off the objects listed below, although I had done nothing to offend them. I therefore submit this complaint to you in order that you may add your signature regarding the details and forward a copy of the complaint to the authorities concerned so that I may recover my property and they suffer the appropriate punishment. Farewell. End quote. The underlying tension between the Greek and Egyptian communities could result in outbreaks of violence. In the last episode, we discussed the experiences of Ptolemaeus, the recluse in the Serapium of Memphis. 
Despite living among them for several decades in a holy sanctuary, no less than three petitions were sent out by Ptolemaeus during the turbulent 160s, recounting how he had been assaulted and nearly killed by the local Egyptians. Both Ptolemaeus and other Greek petitioners accusing Egyptians of assault tended to emphasize their status as Greeks to magnify the seriousness of the crime, reflecting the hierarchical nature of Egyptian society and the uneven application of justice. This resentment would eventually be too much to contain. Rumblings of discontent could be felt in the time of Ptolemy II and III, though they are poorly described due to a lack of sources for much of the 3rd century. But during the reign of the ineffectual Ptolemy IV, a massive revolt would erupt across much of the Thebaid and Upper Egypt. Its exact causes have been heavily debated, but the Ptolemies would see the establishment of a rival dynasty headed by pharaohs of indigenous Egyptian origin that would entrench itself in the south for almost 20 years. By neglecting the Egyptians and with improper government, the peoples responded with enough ferocity that they would nearly destroy what had been the economic superpower of the Hellenistic world, an event which the Ptolemaic kingdom arguably never recovered from. And with that, we can bring our deep dive into Ptolemaic Egypt to a close. Well, not entirely. The next episode is going to be a normal narrative episode covering the reign of Ptolemy III and Berenike II Eurigetes at the apogee of Ptolemaic power. Truth be told, we will be coming back to Egypt outside of these narrative episodes, especially with topics like the developments in the sciences and the arts. But I hope you've enjoyed this little series over the last few months, though I for one am looking forward to moving on to the next big stage of the Hellenistic world. In the meanwhile, thank you all so much for listening and supporting the show. I am pleased to announce that for those of you who liked being offered bookmarks as a way to support the show, a brand new design based upon the Indo-Greeks is currently available for order from my Etsy page. The link to Etsy will be in my podcast description and in my show notes. And you can always support the show by checking out my coffee page or donating research books via the Amazon show wishlist. But until next time, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast.